You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room and to uh, all the fathers who didn't know until just now. Be a good time to live and say, I love you so much, baby. I appreciate you. And so the other thing is, uh, this is our last Sunday in the book, Goliath Must Fall. Collective. Aww. It's been a really good book. I hope you bought a copy. I hope you've been reading through it. It's not too late for you to grab it and read it on your own. Uh, next week, we'll start a series called Essentials. And we're going to be looking at just saying thank you for three weeks in a row to different essential people in our community. It's been a rough year for a lot of people. And so next week, we would just want to pause and thank the medical community. And so I encourage you, if you're a nurse, doctor, scientist, whatever you might be, uh, if you show up next week, we just want to bless you. We just want to say thank you because we love you and we appreciate you. So feel free to show up next week, bring a loved one with you. And we just want to say thanks and appreciate them together. So get ready to bless people's socks off starting next week. Let's go ahead and jump into today's message with this really annoying question, right? Have you ever sensed God calling you to do something? Now, maybe you don't know what that is. Maybe you're visiting with us. You're like, I don't know what that means or what that looks like. I don't know what to do with that. Like, where do I go with that? I don't even know what God would sound like if he were to speak. Like, what is that happening there? So I can say this. Throughout my life, God has called me to do different things. Some of them really hard. Some of them easy. Some are fun. Some are uh, difficult and require a lot of obedience. In fact, here on Mother's Day, I'm so thankful I listened to God's word years ago. Uh, I, I'm not one of those people, there's roughly 8 billion people in the world today. I don't believe like God has one person picked out for you. And if you don't get it right, boy, it's going to be miserable for you the rest of your life. Like it's either one or that's it. I, it is one if you commit to marriage. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't believe with 8 billion people in the world that he's only got one and you better get lucky and find him. Otherwise it's over. I believe that God is a good God and he leads us and he guides us. And I'm so thankful that he led me and guided me because I was in a relationship with somebody that he'd been telling me for a long time I didn't need to be with and I needed to break it off and I didn't want to break it off. And I'll never forget the night. It was a, it was a worship night. The students at the Bible college that I attended would lead this night and it was called family. And I don't remember who spoke or what they said. Just like 10 years from now, if God takes you away from here, you won't have any idea who spoke or what he said. You'd be like, yeah, that little guy, what did he say again? I can't remember. But there might be something the Spirit says to you, some Bible verse that jumps out of you, and that's the important piece. And that night, God broke me, and I was on my knees. I remember crying before God because he was, he was telling me, Matt, it's time to be done with this relationship. And I'm so glad I did because 21 and a half years of marriage later, I have a beautiful wife, Rachel, who's here in the back with her mom and, and my oldest son, and we have two other kids. And I'm so thankful I listened to God. But it was not easy because I didn't know what God was doing next. And here's the problem. When you don't know what God is doing next, do you still have to obey? Well, technically, no. There's nothing stopping you from disobeying. There's nothing stopping you from going your own way and your own path. Except, is it good? So that's my setup for today's story. In case you're new to this thing, maybe you're visiting at home online, we're really glad you're tuning in with us. Maybe you don't know the story, but we've been going through the series through the story of David and Goliath. If you don't know the story, I'm gonna bring you up to speed, but today I've gotta to go into the backstory a little bit too. So let's go ahead and read some and then I'll teach as we go. First Samuel chapter 17, verse two. Here we go. 
Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Little fascinating thing, if you want to do this later, later, you can Google the valley of Elah. You can actually see pictures of this. I looked through a whole bunch of them. I was going to put one up for you. And every picture I found, I went, you're not going to be able to tell what in the world you're looking at. And so I thought, I'll just leave it out. But just tell you, it's worth Googling later and just looking up. This is a real place on the earth today. In fact, one guy I listened to this week, and I did not have time to look up and verify if he, if he is accurate, he knows what he's talking about. So I may not know what I'm talking about because I might be quoting somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. But he said they actually did an archaeological dig and found a tent believed to be King Saul's tent from this very battle. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. This is history, folks. So if you don't know, if you can trust the Bible, it is amazing how often the Bible is right. In fact, I did just read this week, many times archaeologists and historians will actually look to the Bible to locate things going on in the world because it is so accurate to the things that it says. It's trustworthy. I'll leave it at that. We'll move on. Okay, so what you see in this verse is Saul and the Israelites. That's relevant because if you don't know where we are in 1 Samuel 17, where we are in Bible history, that may not make sense to you. So when God took Abraham and said, I'm gonna create a people out of you, and then he showed him the land of Canaan, and then hundreds of years later, the Israelites were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and God said, it's time now. He raised up Moses, sends Moses over to them, walks them through the desert into what's called the promised land. When all of that unfolded, God was birthing a people for himself, and there's a reason that he was birthing those people. And if you don't connect these dots, this story doesn't make sense to your faith today and you will misapply the story and think it means something else. Here's the application. Go all the way back now to the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were there and they were naked and had no sin. And then Eve sinned and then Adam sinned and God comes down and he pronounces the curses, what's called the curses over top of them. So Eve, there's now gonna be a division between you and your husband because of this. There's gonna be pain when you give birth now. Adam, you're going to work and work and work, and the ground is going to work against you. And I think there's a bigger statement about work, and this is why men struggle and pour all themselves into their work, and it doesn't produce what they hoped it would produce. But then he says to the serpent, to the snake, and whether the snake is literal or, or like a metaphoric, I'm not 100% certain, but I know this, it is Satan himself. And Satan, literally, he says to him, one day this woman will give birth to a son, and you will strike his heel, and he will crush your head. This is all in the book of Genesis. And that's powerful because then what you can see as you track the story from Genesis forward is with each child that comes along in the story, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the promised one. Maybe this is the prophesied one. The one whose heel will be struck, but he will crush the head of the enemy. And what we're being set up to in the very first part of the Bible is a spiritual battle. And the spiritual battle gets played out, fought out in the physical world. So as you come to 1 Kings, sorry, 1 Samuel 17, and we meet the first king of Israel here, you see this is not a physical battle between Saul and the enemies of Israel. It is, but it's bigger than that. It represents something bigger than that. With each passing generation, whether it's Moses or Abraham or even Joshua, no matter what's happening, even here, 
Satan, the Hasatan, the enemy, is trying to destroy the Israelites so that the prophecy about Jesus can't be fulfilled. If we can eliminate all of them from the face of the earth, if we can kill them all, then there'll be nobody to crush the head. And this has been one of Satan's strategies from the very, very beginning. But see, you get to a text like this where you see two people going toe-to-toe in a literal physical war. And you may be tempted to think that's what I'm supposed to do today, but it's not. In fact, it will go really poorly with you if you take five stones to work tomorrow and start throwing them at your coworkers. (laughs) Even worse with your children. Now, I'm making a joke and I don't have time to go into the conquest narratives today, but you have to get this nugget to understand the heart of this. What we get in this story is Saul, we're told when he's anointed king, he's a head taller than everybody else. We don't know exactly how tall that is, but we think from archaeological digs, the average person was around 5'4 or 5'6 at that time. These are my people. I know, I know on this screen, I look like I'm six foot six. You meet me in person, I'm big in personality, and that's about it. And Saul is a head taller. So what's Saul? Six foot something? I don't know. But the whole point is they're about to go to war with the Philistines. They're assembled on these separate hills. And what's going to happen is the biggest among them is going to come down into the valley and challenge whoever the biggest is among them. Let's take a look. First Samuel chapter 17 now, verse 8. Jumping down. Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? No, they're not. They're actually supposed to be servants of the high God. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And they stayed stuck on their hills. Depending on whether you use the Hebrew translation or something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Saul's either nine foot something tall or six foot something tall. Nine foot tall is the traditional rendering. It's possible it was supposed to be the other. I don't know what to tell you, except for his armor alone weighs about 125 pounds. This is supposed to be, you get the idea, a massive, massive man. Strong like you wouldn't believe. Trained warrior, ready for battle. And Saul's looking down and they're going, uh. But why? When we first meet Saul, he's about to be coronated as king. He's literally hiding. It's his coronation. Samuel's standing up to coronate him and he's hiding. And this has been true throughout the few stories we have about Saul's life. He's always afraid. But God chose him for something great. God chose him to do something big. I think part of the lesson to be learned in this from Saul is that God wants to do something in us. The question is not whether God is alive or whether God is active. The question is always, are we willing to step out of our comfort and be obedient? This whole chapter and the one we're closing with is on comfort. And by the end, you might wish we were talking about addiction again. I don't know. But this is hard stuff and it's good stuff and it's important for us stuff. So maybe the real question is not what I asked originally, but have you ever sensed God calling you to do something 
but you didn't follow through? This past week, I knew what was coming, and so there was a couple people I talked to, and they've been unbelievably obedient to God, but things aren't panning out the way that they had hoped that they would or thought that they should. And I said, look, this message on Sunday may stir in you differently, and so therefore, I don't want you to hear this message um, the way that I want everybody else to hear this message. This message isn't for you the way that it's crafted. And here's the thing, as soon as I say that, half the room just went, he was talking to me on that one. <laughs> he means me, like, this is for me. But it might be. It might be that God has something hard and difficult and uncomfortable for you to hear today. Are you willing to open up your heart, open up your ears, and just listen? Just listen. And then do whatever he's telling you to do. I love the way Louis says this in the book, Goliath Must Fall. He says, they, this is Israelites, chose comfort instead of discomfort. They chose to waste their days rather than claim their days. So what's the danger for us? It's that we do the same thing. We waste our days thinking, I got time. I'll obey God in the next season of my life. I'll obey God when I get enough money in the bank. I'll obey God when my kids are out of the house. I'll obey God when I'm older. I'll obey God when I'm finished having fun. I'll obey God when I'm married or after I'm married. I'll obey God when my marriage gets easier. I'll obey God when it seems like a more logical time to take the next step. But God is breaking into our story today. He says the battle is already won. I want you to step out with me right now today. Don't delay. Life is short. Don't waste your days. Years ago, I saw Francis Chan, another pastor, and he was doing a sermon illustration. He pulled out a really long rope and his building was about the same size as this room here. And he took the rope all the way over to like his wall and he took the rope all the way over to that wall. It's like, this represents eternity, except for in eternity, the line, you know, mathematics, the line just keeps going, right? And then he put a little piece of tape right on this piece of the rope. And he said, this represents your life. Now, if if you could just imagine, this is forward eternity because you, you didn't exist forever. At some point you were born and raised and someday you'll, you'll die. If you can imagine the rope going that direction forever and I think, I guess Lazarus, I think I'm right. I think that's Plainfield down there. So if you can imagine it just goes past our wall, out through our parking lot, it keeps on going down through Plainfield, on down south. You just keep taking it south, south, south. Eventually you probably come to like Kentucky, maybe Tennessee. I don't know what's below us geographically at that point. Alabama, sooner or later Mexico, right? If you keep going, you're gonna get down to South America sooner or later, maybe into Peru and then maybe Antarctica. And then if you could just jump off the end of the planet, I don't know what's south of us, Andromeda maybe, I don't know what's out there. You just keep going and going and going as far as your mind can imagine that it goes. And God is saying, will you give me this little blip right here? Now it feels like a lot because it might be 80 years or 100 years, maybe. But in the context of eternity, it's tiny. And God is saying, I'll make you a trade. You get all that, give me this. And so many times we say, but God, I'm not sure where you're going with this. Can I trust you? What if it doesn't work out? What if it's hard? What if it's painful? What if it's uncomfortable? To which God says, I'm really just looking for you to trust me, to follow me, not to have it all worked out. And most people I know who do give their lives to Jesus, yes, it is hard sometimes. Yes, it is painful sometimes. 
But it's always good. It's always good, even when it's hard. Now, what I wanna show you today is I wanna show you the life of Saul, where it went sideways. It's not the first moment, but I wanna show you the climactic moment where it went sideways. And I wanna use that to challenge us today not to follow in his footsteps. And I made a mistake. I had a typo, and so it's gonna show a typo, except for they're gonna be one step ahead of me. They're probably gonna correct it. I had these listed as 1 Samuel 16. They're actually 1 Samuel 15. And uh, the mistake came because we kept losing the internet. And so I kept mixing up when I was grabbing things and retyping it myself. I typed in the wrong passage. So I apologize if you're following in the app. Um, I'm not sure where it has or hasn't been corrected yet. But 1 Samuel 15, if I got it correct, verse 9, it says this. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These, they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now, what's happening here is in 1 Samuel 15, again, my mistake, what happened here is God came to Saul and said, Saul, you're gonna go to battle with the Amalekites. And the king of the Amalekites, King Agag, as you see referenced there, he is, I want you to destroy all of them, all of the people coming aboard. Take out the sheep, take out the cattle, take out the army, take out the king, take out all of them. Saul goes into battle, God is with Saul, they win the battle, but they keep the best of the best of the best. They keep the king, they keep the sheep, they keep the cattle, and Saul did not obey the Lord. Now, this happened over a series of bad decisions for Saul. If you read back over the chapters previously, it was just a series of little decisions that led him away from God. And what you will find in your life is rarely does it happen overnight. There are moments where you may go to a party, you may be hanging out with the wrong crowd and the temptation rises and you weren't strong enough and you gave into something and something terrible or tragic or evil happens. You may have done it or may have happened to you that night. But by and large, by and large, it's a series of small decisions that are not pleasing to the Lord that add up over time and the world doesn't fall apart and so there isn't a discipline and so you continue in that attitude, you continue in that behavior and it grows something unhealthy and dysfunctional in you. And that's Saul's story here. And God was clear to him in this moment, Saul, I'm looking for obedience. And Saul chose to do things his own way. And when Samuel finds out about it, he is all amounts of broken up. Look at the second half of verse 10. It says, Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Let me just say real quick, if you are in a partnership of any sort, it could be a business deal, a marriage, whatever it is, a family situation, and that other person is not being obedient to the Lord, and it suddenly hits you in the face, you may need to spend all night crying out to the Lord. And the reason that Samuel is so upset is because he was the one who helped to, to coronate King Saul. He felt personally responsible as if this was my choice. He's crying out to the Lord. We see this in other texts where he's doing this and he's angry because he's like, I just don't understand. It feels so personal. Samuel, because he loved the people so much, he took it personal when the people asked for a king. And God's like, Samuel, this isn't about you. They're not rebelling against you. They're rebelling against me. And again, he's angry and he cries out to the Lord and the Lord has to speak the same kind of message to Samuel. Samuel, this isn't about you. This is about Saul rebelling against me. And you need to understand those differences, Samuel, because otherwise you're going to lose yourself in what's about to happen next. And what I love about this is the way Louis says it in the book, Goliath Must Fall. He says this, 
Who has the most urgency in their life? When you have urgency, you get in the prayer closet. You get in the word of God. You dig into God to find all you need. And there you find you have everything you need in him. This is what allows Peter, like over a thousand years later, to say, I have all that I need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ, my Lord. So what happens is, Samuel stays up all night, has a prayer session with God, and then he goes to confront King Saul. And the confrontation doesn't go well. He shows up and he hears like the bleeding of the sheep and the, the cows mooing, I don't, whatever cows do. I, I know they make a moo sound, but it's called something else. Lowing, is that right? I don't know, it sounds like a Christmas song, right? The cattle are lowing. Anyway, I don't know what they do. I don't know what cows do. I've never been a farmer. Okay, cows make noise. And he hears them as he's showing up and he's like, oh. And he goes to confront Saul and he's like, Saul, what did you do? And Saul's excuse, his response is this. Look at verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Okay, a couple things. First of all, the Lord did not ask him to keep the best of the cattle and sheep. The Lord did not ask him to keep the king. So the first thing is, I, he did not do what the Lord asked him. The second thing is, notice he's blaming somebody. The soldiers did it. This is all the way back to the garden. Remember Adam and Eve sinned and God's like, Adam, where are you? What's happening? And he's like, she did it. The woman you gave me, it's her fault. This is the pattern. When somebody gets caught, so to speak, rather than humble himself and own it, I blew it, I did this, I'm responsible. They blame and point a finger at everybody else. But notice this also, a couple things are changing. But our intentions were so good. We were gonna offer them as a sacrifice to the Lord. We weren't obedient. We didn't do what you asked us to do. But we had a better plan than what you thought of God. We were gonna do it our way. Except that's not what God said. But then notice there's a subtle change in here. We were gonna sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. See, Saul's disobedience over time hardened his heart to the Lord. So he was no longer open to receive the loving discipline of a heavenly father. Instead, he hardened his heart and rebelled against him. We see this actually over and over and over again in, in Israel's history. This isn't like a one-time thing. And this is important because later on, Paul would write about this. And Paul would say, listen, if today you hear God's voice, come back to God. Don't harden your heart as they did in the days of the rebellion. Speaking specifically about the Israelites in the, in the, or in the desert before the promised land. But we see the pattern over and over and over again because the pattern is a human pattern. It's not an Israelite pattern. It's a Matt Nickerson pattern. It's a you pattern. It's an us pattern. The whole point is when I hear God's voice, do I soften my heart? Do I open my ears? Am I willing to receive and obey? And Saul wasn't. So look at verse 22. But Samuel replied, does the Lord burn, sorry, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Okay, so a few things. Number one, go back to the other slide if you would. Thank you. Um, Here, the Lord doesn't delight in burnt offerings. See, what Samuel's trying to get through to Saul's head is Saul, you thought, I'll do this grandiose thing for God. That's what I'll do. And the real problem is, and we don't know with absolute certainty, but Saul isn't really looking to glorify God. Saul is looking to glorify Saul. The reason he wants to keep keep King Agag, say that 10 times fast. The reason he wants to keep King Agag is because it makes him look better. If I can bring him back and make a big display, and let's just say I go ahead and follow through and I do actually kill the king, I can make a big display. Or maybe I could sell him and barter for money or lock him up and we can, you know, show him off to the people or whatever it is, but that's not what God asked him to do. He wants to make a big show of everything. And that's the thing. And same as saying, Saul, God's not worried about your plan. God's not worried about your idea. What he really wants more than anything is your faithful obedience. And then go to the next verse. Then he says, rebellion is like the sin of divination. I didn't look up the exact passage. I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter 25, but if I'm wrong, please forgive me. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, or wherever the passage I'm thinking of is, uh, God uses in the Hebrew, every known Hebrew word to say, stay away from these things. Have nothing to do with... um, have nothing to do with uh, uh, people who predict the future. Have nothing to do with uh, horoscopes. Have nothing to do with talking to the dead. Have nothing to do with communicating with spirits. Have nothing to do with, and he uses every imaginable word in the Hebrew language so that there would be zero question to the Hebrew people. When God says this, he's not messing around. This is an evil thing. It is a spiritual thing. It is a real thing. Have nothing to do with these things. And then here, when Samuel says this, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, he's saying, listen, you disobeying God is as evil as doing those evil things to the Lord. You can't separate them from idolatry. It's the same thing, Saul. In your mind, I'm doing something better because I'm doing it my way. In God's mind, he's just looking for obedience. Now, here's the powerful thing. What every single hero in the Old Testament does is it makes us long for somebody who actually gets it right. When Elijah is quitting because he's scared after he defeats the prophets of Baal on the mountain and he's running for his life and he's ready to quit, what it makes us long for, even the best prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah, it makes us long for a prophet who won't quit when he's tired. When we look at Saul and we see Saul not being the king he's supposed to be, even though he's a foot taller than everybody else, what we long for is a king who will come and trust God all the way to the end. And when David comes along, even though he's a man after God's own heart, and he finally commits adultery, then he kills the husband of the woman that he cheats with. It makes us long for a king who's not just going to be good 90% of the time or 80% of the time. It makes us long for a king who's going to be righteous and just and fair and pure and trustworthy in all his ways. When we see Moses and he strikes the rock instead of doing what God asked him to do and God says, now you can't go into the promised land. It makes us long for a leader who will be obedient even unto death. Even death on a cross. And this is what Hebrews points out. When it says you have not suffered enough in your trying to obey and withstand sin, You have not suffered even yet unto death. So there's more for you to go through. 
See, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because Jesus overcame the world. And see, that's the two sides of the same coin that you gotta get. All of this longing for a better king, for a better leader, for a better prophet, even for a better priest, because Aaron never gets it right either. All of those longing for those things is found in one man. And his name is Jesus. See, this is the power of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter seven, if you know the chapter. Paul is saying, I can relate with Saul. I can relate with the Israelites because the good I wanna do, I don't do it. And the, the, the very thing I don't wanna do, I keep doing it. And he says in Romans seven, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this life of sin and death? And it's as if Paul is communicating, I'm fighting a battle I can't win. No matter how hard I try, I can't win. I keep losing over and over again. So you know what? You should just quit. Go home. Welcome to Kingsway. We're glad you came here today. No, Paul's conclusion at the end of Romans 7 as it transitions into Romans 8, but praise be to God that there was one who did it for me. So that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my worst day. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm marked with a new identity, with a new name, with a new creation. The reason we get baptized and the reason we also believe that the baptism in the New Testament is by immersion. We had three people, by the way, in the last service get baptized. Can we just stop celebrate that? Amen. Yeah. The reason we preach baptism so powerfully, listen to this. If I preach baptism wrong, then I make you think that the water is what saves you. It's just water. We didn't even pray over it. We do clean it, all right? But we don't pray. It is heated too, so you'll be all right. But the water doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But if I don't preach baptism strong enough, then you may just think baptism is just another thing people should do. Yeah, I probably should get around to that one day. See, baptism was a gift that God gave you so that you would never have to wonder, did I do what I did? Did I get it all right? What if I sin again after I came to faith? Did I say the right words? Did I repent of all my sins? I forgot about that one thing. Oh, that's right. When I was, forgot, when I was 13 years old, that one time I did that thing. I didn't say that. Does that count? God gave you a marker moment where you knew your past was washed away. It was buried in the water like a burial with Jesus Christ and was raised to new life so that he filled you with himself. So that now when he looks at you, you have a new identity. That's exactly what Paul's trying to get to. I think it's in Galatians when he says, for those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed with Christ. It's as if I took off the dirty old clothes that I was wearing, threw them to the ground, put on the clean clothes of Jesus Christ. And now when he looks at me, he doesn't see me, my worst days, my disobedience. Now he sees Jesus, but it's even greater than that. Because when I come up out of the waters, I'm filled with the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So now I actually have the energy, the strength, the fuel, the courage, what I need to get done the job to obey Jesus all the way to the end. So God didn't just say, come on, buddy, get over it. Let's go. Why do you keep failing? What's wrong with you? No, those are the voices of your enemy. But now in Jesus Christ, I have all that I need for life and godliness in him so that I can obey even when it's scary, even when it's hard, and even when he doesn't tell me why he's asking me to do this. See, if I keep chasing after my own comfort, I'm gonna end up where I don't wanna be. 1 Samuel 15, verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned. Please, Honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Don't miss this. This is huge. 
In other words, what Saul said is, okay, fine, fine, I did it. Do you ever meet somebody who, when you confront them about something they did, they go, what do you want me to do about it? Okay, I did it, it's fine. Can we just get over it already? I don't want you to be bringing this up for the rest of our lives together. Instead of looking at you and saying, I did it and I'm so sorry. What do I need to do to make this right? I mean, real repentance shows itself in action. So just, just come with me. In other words, I'm not worried about being made right with God. I'm not worried about obeying. I'm not worried about following after him as long as everybody else thinks I am. Do you see it? Just come with me. We're having a private conversation under the tree. If you come with me, the people know God's with you. They'll think God's with me. We'll pull off this big charade, this big charade in front of everybody, right? And we'll get there and everybody will think that I'm still good. And he still won't call him my God. It's your God. It's your, you got the access to him. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't have to be like this. You have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why in Hebrews it says, so now the temple veil is torn in two and you can approach the throne of grace with confidence coming to the Father to find all that you need in your time of distress. And that analogy may not make sense. I hope we get to preach the book of Hebrews again soon. That's really up to me. Nobody's telling me I can't. I just got to put it on the counter. But in the book, in, in the Old Testament, there was this thick curtain that, that walled off. Only one guy could go behind that curtain one time a year, the high priest. And one time a year on the great day of atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, the third book of the Bible, chapter 16, 316. Don't forget that. He would go into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood on there. He would make an atonement for the sins of all the people. And it would erase all the sins that people hadn't repented of for one year and then come back and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. You get where this is going. Year after year after year after year. And when Jesus died on the cross, it says at that exact moment, there was an earthquake and the veil tore from the top to the bottom into, and then the writer of Hebrews says, so now anybody, you don't need a human mediator. You've got Jesus. His blood covers you. His blood washes away your sin. You can come right into the mercy seat and find help in your time of distress stress. He's not a father who leaves you out there to say, figure it out, suck it up, get over it, buddy. No, he says, come and sit in dad's lap. And this is why Louis, this next quote I'm going to give you, this comes from multiple Louis books. (laughs) I smashed them together. So I can't give a book credit, but Louis Giglio who wrote Goliath must fall says this. The point of our lives is the fame of Jesus. Let that just sink in for a second. I'm not here to make money. I'm not here to have a bigger business. I'm not here to raise a family. I'm not here to own a house or a car or cool clothes. I'm here for the fame of Jesus. And Louis gives a great illustration in the book, Life Must Fall, about Unfortunately, he's going into Auburn Stadium because he's an Auburn fan, but I'm a Buckeye, so you know, whatever. We all got our problems. But he goes into the stadium and he's talking about just the overwhelming scene of all the people chanting, blue, orange, blue, orange. And he's like, man, imagine a people going crazy for the fame of Jesus, like we go crazy for our sports teams. Could you imagine a place like that? I can. It's called heaven. And I'd love to see a glimpse of it on earth. Louis says, to mean it when I say that I want my life to count for his glory is to drive a stake through the heart of self. 
a painful and determined dying to me that must be a part of every day I live. If your goal in life is to seek pleasure and comfort, you're gonna have a hard time pleasing God. But if your goal in life is the fame of Jesus Christ, you'll find all you need. And it actually says that God delights in giving us what delights us. See, when I'm delighted in the Lord, he has no problem giving me good things because I delight in him. The good things aren't what I'm finding my identity in. The good things are just a thing. And if he takes those things away, I still got the thing I was delighting in in the first place. Burn my house to the ground, get my kids and wife out. I'm good. I'm good. Because they're just stuff. Now, I want to close with one last illustration. And the reason I wanted to close with this illustration is because this illustration, I believe, will bring it home for you right now. You've heard the phrase, right? If God closes one door, he does what? And the problem is that is like American churchianity hype that is not normally backed up by scripture. I'm not gonna lie. There are more than one passage that speaks of Jesus and doors. You find two of them in Revelation. One of them, I think they're both in Revelation 3 actually, but one of them, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock and any man who hears my voice, I'll come in and I'll eat with him. He's actually speaking to a church, but specifically anybody. Right now, if you're hearing the voice of Jesus knocking on the door, open the door. Jesus would love to come in and eat with you. The other one is actually in Revelation two, uh, 3, I think also, 2 is an also. And, and that text, I believe it, it says there, Jesus says, any door I shut, no one will open. So there is an element of truth to the statement, but not the way we mean it. Doors are just a helpful analogy, but see what we say in America is, here's how I'll know God's will for my life. If it's easy, the door's open, I'm just gonna walk right through. That's how I'll know it's God's will. And if I get up to that door and it's like, oh, well, it's shut. God can't open shut doors, so I guess I'll look for a different one. That's how I'll know. And the implication is, if it's easy, then it's from God. But that's not the biblical picture. Those other two door illustrations, which you find all the time in memes, that's not what they're saying. In the one, Jesus is saying, I want a relationship with you and you won't let me in. Open the door, I'll come in. In the other, he's saying, and if I come in and I shut a door, nobody's gonna hurt you. Nobody's gonna do anything to you except for what I allow. I'm gonna protect you. I'm your father. I'm your savior. Follow me, trust me. I believe he says that other one to the church in Philadelphia, which is one of the two churches who don't get a rebuke of those seven churches in the book of Revelation. But let me show you another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verse six, and a guy named Paul later writes this. He's talking to the church in Corinth. He's currently at the church in Ephesus. These are two ancient cities in modern day Turkey today. He says, perhaps I will stay with you for a while. In other words, he's coming to you. Or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. In other words, I don't know what's gonna happen next, we sometimes think Paul has special insight. I don't know. Here's my plan. If the Lord allows it, this is what I'll do. If he doesn't, we'll go where God wants. But then he says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Wait, 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 what? 
Oh yeah, there's a door that's open, but instead of it just being an open door that I just have to walk through, the door is being pushed on by a multitude of people who don't want me to come in here and win the enemy to Jesus Christ. See, in 1 Samuel 17, if you have the wrong perspective, you think the goal is crush and kill your enemy. Jesus comes along, he says to the disciples, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, in the old way, God did it this way. We had to keep the people alive so that the enemy couldn't win until I got here. Now that I'm here, there's a new way. So go do for your enemies what I've done for you. Love those who persecute you. Pray for those who treat you harshly. Bless those who curse you. Don't bring a curse back on them. Don't do to others as they do to you. Do to others as you wish they had done to you. Treat everyone with honor and respect. Man, I'm quoting passages all over the place here. If you know them, I hope they're ringing true. And Paul's saying, there's a great work here. There's an opportunity, but I gotta push through. I gotta get through this difficult time and not quit. It's not gonna be easy. Man, what is God calling you to do right now? And it scares you. And you're standing on a hill and you're looking at the battle in front of you and going, I don't know if I have what it takes. Maybe today is the day that you stop fighting on your own and you believe that God in heaven is really for you and with you and in you and will go through the battle with you. You will never fight alone. I don't know where this lands, but I have to throw this out there. Maybe today is your day. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you're still trying to fight on your own. If you're at home, you can literally, or here, you could text 317-565-4911. Anytime, any day, day or night, we will respond as soon as possible. Just text the word connect. Today, maybe you need to text that message or go out to our connect hub and say, I don't know what to do next, but I need Jesus. I need to learn to hear his voice. I need Jesus. What I wanna do right now is I wanna pray for you because this is a serious message and I've not tried to crack many jokes because I love jokes, but I'm not half as funny as I think I am and I didn't wanna kill a moment. See, I just did it. But I wanna pray that God would stir in your heart today and give you the strength to be obedient to him, even unto death. Let's pray. Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, give us today everything we need. And Father, as we turn to you to receive forgiveness over our rebellion, God, may we have the same gracious, merciful heart to give that away to those who've done us wrong as well. And God, today, please let us not be led into temptation. But God, deliver us from the evil one. Whether it's oppression or attacks, or repenting of sin, or taking a hard step, or making the right decision ethically in our business, or just treating others with honor. As the enemy comes calling our name, God, would you give us the courage, the strength that we need in the name of Jesus? And Father, I pray right now for those who've never given their lives to you, they've never united with you in baptism, I pray, God, you would stir in their heart a desire to do that in obedience to you. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.